Stir up your power, O Lord, and with great might come among us. And because we are sorely hindered by our sins, let your bountiful grace and mercy speedily help and deliver us. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, the the third Sunday of Advent, December the 11th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We had a great week this week. Um, Suzanne and I went over to the beach at Pauly's Island. Uh, We we left on Sunday and came back uh, Thursday. Uh, Stayed with friends um, at their beach house. Uh, right on the beach. It was fabulous. The weather was not great. We had a couple of, uh, we had one day that was really sunny and the other days were sort of cloudy. Sun would break through from time to time, but it was just a perfect day uh, that one day when when the sun came out. But every day was great. Every day was great. We had a wonderful time. We had such a blessed time with our friends there. And while we were there, other friends came over three or four times and we were able to spend time with them, had dinner with another friend one night and then talked to um, somebody else the last day we were there, uh, sort of the Margaret Murphy, the um, wife of my uh, mentor and hero, (laughs) Chuck Murphy, uh, who was our bishop and the founding bishop of the AMI and um, who died, I think, four years ago now. And it was uh, it was a blessed time together. They, like us, had lost a son uh, who, at 24, he was, and it was about 10 years ago. And so it was um, a, a time when we could share with one another in a in a way that was that was truly uh, wonderful for us, and I uh, hope for them as well. But we had a great time. Um, been thinking about something. We were walking on a beach uh, one day, and the tide was coming in, and just began to sort of cast my mind back in time to when I was a child and um, can remember, I mean, I wasn't a little, little kid. I, I was, you know, probably single digits, maybe, you know, nine, ten years old, somewhere in that range. And my brothers were out there with me in the water, probably just my middle brother at that time, because my younger brother would have been probably too young to for them to have allowed him to go out. And we got out in the water, and, and I remember every time we went, uh, it was the same thing, right? I mean, you go out and you go and you go out. And you, what you want is to catch a wave, right? There's this this wonderful feeling of being buoyed on the wave and carried forward. And so, um, and then after a little while, it would sort of stop rolling in where you were. And then it would be, oh, hey, if we just go out another, you know, eight, ten feet, that's where they seem to be coming right now. And so we'd go out a little further, and then a little further, and then a little further. Uh, and we're just trying to catch the wave. That's all we wanted was just to kind of catch that and have it drift us in towards the shore. And, and then the next thing that would ultimately happen is is that my mother and father, somebody, usually my mother, would begin to uh, yell at us <laughs> and tell us to come back closer to the shore. We were getting too far out. They knew something about the undertow that we didn't know. And and so we would get further and further out because we wanted to catch that wave. We We knew what we wanted, and we wanted to be part of that. And it's so easy to get taken away by by the the emotion or by the the thing you know that that seems so shiny you know we chase that thing and then we ultimately chase it to our own peril and so we need to make sure that that we understand all the risks whenever we start heading off in one direction and I just you know I, I was able to spend some time reflecting on on how often in my own life I had um been led astray and chased off after something and how much time that I that I've wasted over the last whatever period of time uh, on on things that that were not 
healthy for me, weren't going to bear uh, fruit. And it, it was just, you know, I've wasted a lot of time in my life. And I hate to say that, but I have, and I have to admit that. So it, 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 you need somebody, and you need to listen to that somebody when you've gone too far, you know, and you need to be reeled back in. It's important to see that. And that's kind of, we, we can follow our own fancy and we can look for the wrong things and we can follow after the wrong things. And, you know, that everything is shiny isn't, doesn't mean that that thing's gold. And we can waste a lot of time chasing those things in our lives. And so that part of what we're trying to do is get smaller and, and really try and focus on the important things in life. And, and that this week, was, I was reminded again and again how often that that is always for me people. Uh, I, I probably told a thousand stories while we were there over the four days, and um, what I realized is is that that the stories that I tell are always about other people, and, and I was involved in those stories always, but the, the great blessing in my life has been that I've been um, surrounded in, in many times in many ways in my life by just wonderful people, and I've, and I've had wonderful times. I told Suzanne that maybe what I'd really like to have on my tombstone when I die is he had more fun than anybody else, because it's true. Um, and, and it's just, anyway, just kind of reflecting on that kind of prepared me for, for this. And, and, and what I'm really thinking about today is going to be vision. And it's not one of the lessons, but I want to kind of begin with it today anyway, um, because it, it's an important piece of Scripture, and that's Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, or the people are discouraged. And then, but blessed is he who keeps the law. And so it's talking about the importance of the prophetic vision, and Jesus cast a prophetic vision for us. John cast a prophetic vision for us, too, as well, in this uh, passage today that we're going to read. But, but we start with Isaiah 35, 1 to 10, and that's where the first part of this prophetic vision begins. And remember the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is the, the, the prophetic vision of people streaming to the mountain of the Lord. And there's two effects on that. The first is on people. They begin to come to the mountain so that the Lord can provide righteous judgment and what is the 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 uh upshot of that and what happens after after they come to him for righteous judgments they recognize these things to be righteous so they beat their um their weapons into weapons of uh to farm not weapons but they beat their weapons into implements with which they can do farming because now they know right and wrong good and bad righteousness and unrighteousness and so they accept the judgment of god and that begins to change human interaction and then the second thing that we keep seeing is that that interactions with humans and nature changes and then we're going to see more of that today so the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing so the wilderness and the dry land are going to be glad, and the desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It, the desert, shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And so he's talking about the effect that the... Um, the final coming of the Lord, the, the day of the Lord, the recreation of the world will bring to the earth itself. It'll, it'll be a joyous thing. It'll be a, and there will be bountiful provision given by the land. And as I said, one of the things that, that the Lord was doing is, is that when he took his people to the land he was giving them, he re, he was, his promise was, I will reverse the curse that's on the land due to the sin of Adam and then do further to the sin of Cain. 
I'll reverse that, and the land will provide for you super abundantly in a way that all the nations will see, and they'll remark on it. That's what will be the drawing card to bring them to Israel, to the mountain of God in Jerusalem. Because they'll see this blessing from that God, and then they'll understand it's a people who follow the law of that God. But where there's no prophetic vision, uh, Proverbs says, the people become discouraged or, or they have no restraint. In other words, they'll, they'll go into sin. They, they need a compelling vision of the future, and that's what Isaiah is laying out here in this passage. It, it's the same thing Paul says in Romans 8. Right in, in, chap- in verses 18 to 23, says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who had the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then Paul goes on to say that the Spirit groans for us with with words that are too articulate for words. And so this groaning is, is, is the anticipation that's based in a vision of God's preferred future. And then he goes on, Isaiah does, to, to speak to the people, strengthen the weak hands, God's saying this, and make the feeble, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Does all that sound familiar? The eyes of the blind opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the tongue of the mute sing for joy, and the lame man leap like a deer. That lame man leaping for deer always makes me think of uh, Peter and John at the beautiful gate, and they, they Peter looks at the man and says, Gold and silver I have not, but this I have in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he, he begins to leap. And praise God. And so we see Jesus fulfilled this very prophecy right here. The eyes of the blind were open. The deaf ears were unstopped. The lame man leaps like a deer in the tongue of the mute, sings for joy. Waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool in the thirsty ground, springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. There means there's water nearby. So in all these places that are desolate will become fruitful and beautiful places. It's a miraculous thing to see God reverse all these curses, all the enmity between human beings, and then the enmity between humans and the animal kingdom with the child, weaned child playing over the whole of the adder, and then the, the whole creation begins to spring forth in new life. That, that's the promise of God. That's what we're waiting for. Do you see it? Can you see that vision? Can you catch that vision and, and find it to be true and compelling? He says, a highway shall be there, and it'll be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. The, that's one of the things that I pray constantly in my own life, right? Is, Lord, just show me where you are. Show me where you want me to be. Give me a glimpse of you, and I will run after you. 
because I want to be where you are because I know that's the safest place in the world. It might, may not be the most comfortable place in the world because God will say two things to us, right? Come and follow me, and then he'll say, fear not, because he's going to take you to places where you'd rather not go because when he gets people who will follow him, he has to take them to places where he needs them. And so they'll be sometimes in dangerous places, but yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And so God's making a new way. And what he says is the way of God, the highway of holiness, will be so clear and so plain, not even a fool could go astray. That's good news for people like me. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. All this stuff is revelation language. Every single bit of that sounds a lot like what you find in Revelation 21. It's the promise that that compelling promise in Isaiah hasn't changed. It didn't change over the 700 years-ish between the time Isaiah got the word and the time John got the vision at Patmos. And it hasn't changed in the 2,000 years since then. The new creation is going to be unlike anything we've ever seen before. It will be amazing. Absolutely amazing. And then we're going to be placed into that. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book a long time ago called Pollution and the Death of Man. And in it, he talks about the divisions that were created by the sin in the garden. And that's the division between man and woman. The division then between God, uh, man and creation man and God, that those, all those separations, and, and then ultimately what happens in the end is all those things will be healed. And Schaefer's premise is, is that we as Christians should be great conservationists. We should love the earth not as our mother, but as God's good creation. And, and that we were given the responsibility uh, to be uh, stewards of that good creation, and it's a responsibility we as the church, we as Christians should take seriously, and so we want to see these things happen. We want to see places flower. We, we understand ecosystems, and we understand biospheres and all that kind of stuff, and, and so we do understand that, that a desert has its place. The salt in the ocean has its place. In the environment of the climate that we have now, all those things are necessary, but so are rainforests, so are many other things, and we need to work for the preservation of those things. And so it's important that we do that because we're trying to bring the kingdom now as well. We know we're going to do it imperfectly and incompletely, but but that vision should be a compelling vision for us. And so we want to see reconciliation. We want to see reconciliation between God and humankind. We want to see reconciliation among humankind, those created in the image of God. That's only possible. Both those two reconciliations, all reconciliation is truly only possible through the cross of Jesus Christ. Because he made the way for reconciliation between God and humankind to be possible. And his example of laying down his life, laying down his own innocence to make reconciliation with us, those who insisted on his crucifixion. And that becomes or should become the way of life for those who take the name of Jesus. And in so doing, we're bringing the kingdom of God into the world that we're in today. We're doing what I said last night. We're supposed to be the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. That's exactly who we're supposed to be. And we're supposed to work for the establishment of that community today in these lives. That's the job we have to do. And the proclamation of Jesus Christ 
is the way that we make that community possible. Because as people come to know and receive Jesus Christ and then take his yoke and begin to become like him, have his attitudes towards everything, then, then we'll see true change. We'll see true reconciliation in the world. And James is going to talk about that a little bit in the passage we're going to look at at the end of uh, today's message. In the gospel today, this is Matthew eleven two to 11. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, it's an interesting way of saying that. I think Matthew has, has chosen an interesting way of saying that. He could have said about the deeds of Jesus, about the things Jesus had done, something like that. But no, he points in, in, in the direction of who is Jesus. He's not just the man named Jesus. He is the Christ of God, the anointed one of God. And so it, it's the deeds of Christ Deeds of the anointed one of God, not just the deeds of a man named Jesus. No, the deeds of the Christ of God. John heard about those deeds when he was in prison. Remember, he's cousin. He was the forerunner. He's the one who baptized Jesus. He's the one who saw the sign and said, he's the one. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So John, John's in prison because he, he criticized Herod for marrying his brother's wife, and his brother's wife resented that. And so she had him thrown into prison and ultimately beheaded. So he hears this in prison, and one of the things Messiah is supposed to do, according to Isaiah in Isaiah 62, is to set the prisoners free and release the captives. And here's John in prison the forerunner of Messiah, the one who was anointed to go before, the one who, who was promised in the prophecy of Malachi that Elijah would come before the Messiah and prepare the way, the one John knew who he was. He was the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And now here he is in prison, and he has questions. He sent word by his disciples and said to him, to Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? It's really interesting. If you look at commentary on that passage, what you'll see, if you look back at ancient commentaries, like early church fathers kind of stuff, to a man, and it is a man, literally, in that case, they were the church fathers that, that, that was men who were in charge. Um, I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just stating a, a fact that, that if you look at those early commentaries, what you'll find really quickly is this, that, that to a man— what they said was is that John never had a doubt. John never wavered in his face, faith that Jesus was the Christ. And, and what he's doing here, they said, is, is intended to attach his disciples to Jesus. That John didn't doubt, but, but his disciples, he needed them to move forward and follow Jesus and accept him as the Christ. That's exactly what every ancient commentary says. I mean, I can't say every because there's there's a lot more commentary now than there was then, but but dang near every um, modern commentary says that John's having crisis of faith here, and he's actually wondering because of his situation can't be reconciled in his mind with the promise of the work that the Christ will do, that he can't figure it out. If I'm following you, why am I in this situation? Well, that would be true of, of pretty much all the patriarchs, wouldn't it? Abraham would have asked that question after 24 years. He did ask that question, in fact. What are you going to give me since I continue with childless? Jacob, when he's out serving Laban, when Joseph is gone, all these times, why am I in this situation? 
I'm following the Lord. Why am I in a situation that I don't understand? It doesn't make sense. If I'm following, as I said before, there's two things that you can always count on. God's saying, follow me and fear not. If I'm following the God of the universe, why am I in the situation that I'm in? I don't understand. Moses, 40 years serving his father-in-law out there, and then 40 more years in the wilderness. David running from Saul. And again and again and again, you see these um, men of God in situations that don't make any sense. Jeremiah tossed in, you know, <laughs> it tossed into a pit, threatened to die. All these guys along the way, why am I in this situation? The disciples are going to face that same situation as they're all martyred. With the exception, we think, of John. It could be others, but, but we, John is one we know died a natural death, but he died in exile on the island of Patmos. So, so the, the question that modern commentators are raising is John doesn't know, and, and, and I don't know. I don't know how to square the circle. I don't know whether John's having a crisis of faith or whether John is doing what the ancient commentarists said he was doing. I have no earthly idea. I don't have any way to know that. All I can know is this. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. It would seem to me that at some level, Jesus is speaking to both the disciples and to John. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. And, and so he does leave out something from Isaiah 61 and 62. He leaves out the release of the captives. So the question essentially comes down to, can you accept Jesus as the Christ if he doesn't do the one thing that you believe you need more than anything else in the world? If you don't get that thing in this life that you believe is promised to you, can you live a joyous and victorious life? Can you move on day to day without that thing? Can you accept that and not question your faith? Now, I'm not saying you can't question it. I'm saying you have to hold tight to your faith rather than holding tight to that other thing. Because as long as you're holding too tightly to that other thing and you're questioning your faith because that's not happening, then the problem can become that that becomes like Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. It becomes the precious. And your joy is gone and suddenly that's all you have. And what you don't have is anything. And so we can lose sight of that which is important. We can then, we'll stop spending time with him. We'll stop spending time in the word. We'll stop spending time in prayer. And then ultimately all we have left is the precious. And we have to be careful about that. And so the question is, is, is that's what's going on here? John says, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me because everybody else gets the thing that they seem to want and I don't. Am I offended by Jesus? Does he have to do that thing for me, for me to rejoice in him, to love him, to adore him, to seek after him and not that thing? Can I let it go in such a way that, that I'm free spiritually and I'm free emotionally? And then they went away. And when they did, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John because of crowds around Jesus. As, as so John's disciples are going away, and Jesus looks at the crowd, and he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go to see a reed shaking in the wind? The answer to that is clearly no. Then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? We were told John dressed in camel hair. It's not like the camel hair blazer I have, which is very 
smooth and soft and comfortable. No, he was literally dressed in camel hair. <clears throat> so he says, Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, not in the wilderness where John was. What then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is whom he of whom it's written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. He's saying he's the, he, he tells his disciples later, Elijah has come. Here he's telling the crowd, Elijah has come. He's the one promised in Malachi, is what Jesus is saying. That's him right there. He's more than a prophet. He's the forerunner of Messiah. He is the herald of the Messiah. He's the herald of the coming of God into the world. That's who he is. He's more than a prophet. But then he goes on to say something that, that just is baffling in some ways. And it would have been truly baffling to the people there. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So up until this point in time, not Moses, not Abraham, not nobody, not David, nobody. There's never arisen one greater than John the Baptist. In all of human history, John the Baptist is the greatest that's ever come. He's greater than all of those. Why is that? Because he's the one who points to Messiah and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one. He got the greatest revelation because he also got to see Jesus up to that moment. Because after he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's never arisen one greater than John the Baptist. He says, Yet, but... But the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So among those born of women, there's never been one greater. In the kingdom of heaven, the least is greater. Why is that? We know the rest of the story. We know about the resurrection. We know the fullness of the revelation. John saw it in, as Jesus was coming in judgment. We know there's a greater story than that. The greater story than that is he came to save the world, that those who believed in him might be saved and not, not, not have death. We wouldn't perish, but we'll have everlasting life, he says. That's why we're greater. We have a better message than John had because we live on this side of Easter, as my father-in-law would have said. It's important that we do that. We recognize two things. We recognize this world is passing away, but we recognize that a new world is coming. It's an important message for us. We need to be those people who stand and say with John, I don't understand what's going on. It's what Habakkuk says. He begins his prophecy by asking the Lord, what's going on? I don't understand what I'm seeing. It looks like your people are suffering. We're dying, and it looks like we're going to get trampled. How can you, God, look on this kind of injustice? These pagan, heathen nations are about to overrun your people. And God's response is, you need to see things differently, Habakkuk. You need a different vision. You need to see things through my eyes. There's more going on than you understand. This comes first. That comes next. Judgment comes first in that place, and then redemption comes, he says. And so Habakkuk says, I'm going to go stand on the wall, and I'm going to watch. I'm going to put everything else behind me. I'm not going to judge by what I see. I'm going to look out there, and I'm going to see what God says, and wait. And he waits, 
And then God says this, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It'll surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. And that's what Paul tells the Romans. You got to live by faith, not by sight. Keep your eyes open. Know that the vision is true. That's the reason he tells him to write it. It's a commitment that the vision is true. I'm going to write it down. I'm not going to be able to deny later what I said. Here it is. Not like the internet. You can't erase that. So Habakkuk writes the vision, is told to write the vision and make it plain on tablets so that everybody can see and share in that prophetic vision. Just like the writer of Proverbs said, where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off retreat, but blessed is he who keeps the law. And so in other words, as long as there's no prophetic vision in that world, then, then people are going to lose the thread. And they're going to start going off in other directions because they don't see God at work. And he tells Habakkuk, nope, nope, write it down. Make it plain. There it is. And that's what Isaiah's doing. And so John or, or Jesus says there's a greater vision coming than even John has. And we're the beneficiaries of that because we live on this side of the resurrection, this side of the cross. And then James is going to tell us how to live. How do we live in that world? How do we live with one eye on the understanding that the world is passing away and waiting for the world that is to be when, the, when this whole thing is reconstituted anew. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, which is exactly what God said to Habakkuk, right? He says, still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. It'll surely come. It will not delay. And that's exactly what James is saying here. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. And this is Jesus talked about that kind of thing. You know, you do your job. You know, the farmer puts in the, the seed in the ground. He prepares the ground. He puts the seed in the ground. He, he then tends the ground. But we still got to have the rain to make it grow. If you don't get that, then it's not going to happen. You can do all the things you have to do, and then you can wait for God to do his part, to bring that thing about. And that's what we're intended to do in this time of waiting. We're not supposed to be passive. We're supposed to be active. We're supposed to be actively extending the kingdom of God in our own lives, through our lives, through our proclamation of Jesus, and through the fellowship of the church. So we're supposed to wait, but we're supposed to do our job. The farmer didn't just throw the, so the seed out into unprepared soil and, and say, well, great, I'm going to get a great crop, and then go back in and say, okay, I'll go out and check that in a while. No, he did the work necessary, the work that was given to him to do, and then he left the rest of the work that he has no control over. He left that to God. He says, so like that, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Do that work. Fix your sights on him. Make sure you are strong in him. Don't be taken around and chase after shiny things. Don't do that. No, fix yourselves on him. Establish your hearts. Don't let them be swayed in the wind, drifting on the current. He said, for the coming of the Lord is in hand. Don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged, like those in the desert did, those in the wilderness. What did they do? They murmured amongst themselves. And what were they doing? They were murmuring against Moses. They were murmuring against the leadership. No, they should have been praying to God. 
but they were murmuring among themselves. And so here it says, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. That's what they were judged for in the wilderness, was murmuring about one another. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. He's right there. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So James says, expect suffering and expect to be patient in this, but wait like Christians. Don't be be pulled apart. Don't set your sights on this world and the things of this world. Don't let that thing, maybe it's a, a spouse, maybe it's a money, maybe whatever it is, don't let that thing, that earthly thing, keep you away from him. Don't do it. Do not doubt. Now, John could, because John hadn't seen the resurrection. But we have. We know these things. We have the Holy Spirit in a different way than John did. But we allow ourselves to be pulled and in, in, tugged in different directions, and we want to see the fulfillment of some earthly dream. And we let that stand between us and faith in Jesus Christ. And when we do, we say we have not yet found the pearl of great price. We're still waiting for that. We know what it is, and, and so we spend all our time on that thing that we have made the pearl of great price. And it's easy, if we're honest with ourselves, to tell that we've done it. Let this be a time when you remember what the pearl of great price is and to the extent that you've allowed yourself to be pulled away from the, the, the quest for the pearl of great price, when you've allowed something else to become the pearl, be honest. Be honest with yourself, ruthlessly so, and then go to the cross and leave that before the cross and walk away, following after Jesus, chasing after him, because without any question, he is the pearl of great price. He is the pearl of heaven. He is the greatest thing that's ever come into this world. And it should be our great desire to spend all eternity in his loving presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.